<clears throat> so we've um, spoken quite a few times about right view. Alexis described it some more now, the sense of just understanding <clears throat> in the beginning of our practice the, that we're just perceiving nature without taking it personally, without adding an assumption on top of it. But in another way, right view simply means recognizing things as they are already. So in alignment, living in alignment, understanding in alignment with, with life, with life as it actually is. And right view, on, as it continues to cycle and grow with wisdom, wisdom is simply recognizing accurately what's occurring, as we've said this, and steady, steady awareness is what leads to, is the condition that allows for this clarity of wisdom to arise. So what I want to talk about a bit tonight is um, not all, but a little bit of what, what is the insight, what is it that right view recognizes, right? I mean, nothing, this is not new information <laughs> to anyone who's been practicing on the intellectual level. But of course, right view, the real cellular understanding of things as they are, is not just on the intellectual level. So we keep on, keep on, keep on bringing an awareness to whatever's occurring. So what is it that wisdom recognizes? Different ways it could be talked about. Tonight I want to talk about it in terms of how the Buddha described all conditioned experience as having the characteristics, all conditioned experience without exception, having the characteristic of being impermanent, anicca, constant change and flow, of being, dukkha is the word in Pali, but of being unreliable, unsatisfactory, nothing one can place one's trust in as a way to happiness or peace. I will always disappoint. And anatta, that no conditioned experience has an intrinsic sense of self. There is no steady self. And it's about all things, but of course, what we care about is me. So there's like, it's not self. So these three qualities are, that's just how things are. It's not that as wisdom develops, suddenly the world shifts and everything starts to change. Whereas before it was steady state. It's not that um, the nature of insight is, oh, now that I've moved through that black hole into the alternate universe, everything's unreliable and shifting and not self. Before, it was really solid and didn't change. It just somehow, I wasn't happy about that. So the nature of insight, it comes back again to the, uh, in my mind, literal uh, meaning of right view of accurate recognition. So the nature of insight actually begins with perception. The shift of perception. Perception, Sanya in the Pali, is very, refers to a very specific state of mind, that quality of whenever there's a sense contact, hearing, the mind, there's a recognition of it. Right? No hands clapping. It just happens. I mean, it's not right or wrong. It just happens. That, and we're not trying to stop it but we just can recognize it happens. It's based on memory, right? If you've never heard that sound before, the mind might not know. You might not know it's hands clapping. 
But the habit of perception, what the mind tends to do is, more often than not, make something up. So rather than, oh, I don't know what that sound is, the mind goes, oh, that's a such and so. You know, it may be right, it may be wrong. So a very simple perception like that can be inaccurate. And we don't know unless we come back and look carefully and say, oh, that was hands clapping. We hear it again, we recognize it again. So some inaccurate perceptions, very simple to recognize. But the perception of impermanence, the perception of the unreliability, the unsatisfactory of particular experience, the perception of not-self are not so easy to recognize. The perception, the Buddha talks about it as inverted perception, or the distortions, the hallucinations of perception, that so much of the time, the perception, say, of impermanence isn't there. We may even think, sure, I know everything's impermanent, but our perception actually is its pretty solid. I look at that Zabutan. I'm not thinking about it, but I'm not seeing change going on there, you know? And my mind, without thinking, that's the same as it was yesterday, the same as it's going to be tomorrow. There's this whole assumption of permanence, you know, without even recognizing that's going on or questioning it. So reality doesn't change. But it starts with perception. The shift of perception into alignment with how things are is really the movement of insight. But perception is so important because it doesn't just stop there. The Buddha talks about the distortions of perception or accurate perception. That perception gives rise to um, citta, how we think about things. And then that gives rise to ditti or view, wise view or inaccurate view. So the perception gives rise to thought, which gives rise to view. I mean, this is how it is. We think this is how it is. And all the accompanying thoughts and moods and actions arise from that, just in the blink of an eye. Simple example. I was reminded of this simple story from Alexis's experience two nights ago with the chirping, which hopefully didn't happen again, right? (laughs) So it's a story Joseph told. I'm allowed to tell it, but it's his story. (laughs) Very possessive. Dharma teachers are of their stories. <laughs> Although he said it didn't happen to him. I mentioned it at the table. He goes, oh, that's my story. I said, okay, okay so but you can use it. I said, well, I heard you give a talk where it wasn't only my story, it actually happened to me, and you were using it, and you didn't ask me. <laughs> so payback time. <laughs> this is what goes on. It's really highbrow stuff. <laughs> Anyway, so this couple, and we can't remember who it was, so I hope there's no one in this room because we can't remember who it actually happened to. (laughs) It was a long time ago. So a couple of her friends moved into like a new house, and they're settling in, and then they started hearing this little actually chirping from the basement, and it sounded like, like little, oh, there must be like a little nest of little birdlings. Isn't that sweet? And they'd hear the chirping, and oh, that's so sweet, you know? This went on for a couple of days, and, and the thoughts, and oh, it's so nice, and feeling so, you know, all the happy emotions, all this stuff goes on. After a couple of days, they thought, you know, it's a little too regular. I don't really, really. So they actually went down and looked, which can help. And of course, it was Alexis's chirping. It was the, uh, it was the, the uh, what do you call it, the fire alarm thing, chirp, 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 chirp. So then... 
that was accurate recognition. And all the thoughts change, and all the moods change, and all the story around it changes. It's like, oh, you know, deflated, unhappy. I mean, it wasn't like the end of their life, but everything around it changed just from the perception becoming accurate. You get a sense of that. So perception to thinking to view. And then once there's a view, oh, it's like this. We have views all the time. Once there's attachment to it, and most of the time we don't even recognize it's a view, never mind we're attached to it. They weren't saying, oh, it's a view that that chirping sound is birds and I really love it. It's like, no, that's what it is. That's basically how views are. So when we're talking about perception, accurate perception or inaccurate perception, inaccurate perception takes us into the realm of looking for ease and happiness in experience that's changing, that's unreliable, that has no steady, stable self-core, and then not understanding why it isn't working. Why doesn't some sorrow work? You know, Because we're looking in the wrong way at the wrong thing. So just to go into this a little tonight, I just want to pick a Nietzsche, because I could talk all night about each of them and to try and do all three at once. Let's just stick with a Nietzsche. They all come together anyway. The, unsatis- the reason the experiences are unsatisfactory and unreliable is essentially because they're constantly changing. And the fact, the reason that there's not a, a steady, stable self is because there's no steady, stable nothing to be a steady, stable self. So it's really kind of just roped around together in three angles of the same reality. So I'm just going to talk about impermanence. This is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, which means really practitioners. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed, cultivated, it eliminates all sensual craving. It eliminates all craving for becoming, for becoming any particular state, any particular experience. It eliminates all ignorance it uproots all of the conceit, all of the view of I am. This is shorthand for complete awakening, those four things. The perception of impermanence, when basically really deeply known, it uproots, it eliminates, it dissolves the craving and the confusion that comes from the view, the conceit I am. Well, that's a pretty powerful statement, in my opinion. Really powerful. And it's not saying you got to go out and get rid of it. It's just coming back to the power of accurate perception. And probably I could just say this next slide, and that's the rest of the end of the talk. What do you think gives us accurate perception? Guess. Have a guess. Based on what we've been talking about ad infinitum, this whole retreat, yeah, steady, Awareness, steady awareness reveals what's already so. Okay, that's enough. Go do it. (laughs) Basically, it is. (laughs) Everything else I'm saying is just intellectual information to kind of encourage you to be willing to keep coming back into steady awareness and exploring why, why don't we. And it's not because we're, you know, recalcitrant and stupid just because of the habits of mind. That's a powerful statement, the power of perception. 
I pick impermanence also because on an intellectual level of those three characteristics, I think for most people, the uh, concept of impermanence isn't really rocket science, right? I mean, the fact that everything comes to an end at some point, is anyone going to dispute that? (laughs) Yeah, I get it. You know, we get it. Yeah, we get it. (laughs) We think we get it. But remember, do you remember? This isn't a test. That Alexis mentioned the three three kind of types of wisdom, three levels of panya, you could say, and they're all important. They work on different levels. So one, when he talked about heard information, data that's coming in, on that level, I'm talking about perception of impermanence. That's information that's coming into your mind, and it's useful. We, we know we can't really learn without hearing correct information. It's useful to us. And it circles around in our own experience, our own mind. It kind of deepens to the next level of um, chintamayapanya, thinking about it, not just analyzing, but kind of you know owning it, feeling it, noticing change, for example. And it's not just disconnected information. We're really understanding it, thinking it through. But it isn't yet really transformative. And the third level, bhavanamayapanya, really, um, bhavana means mental development, really I would say that's the insight level. That's the level I'm talking about of insight, of like a shift. It's like, oh, you know, that aha moment when something, something really changes, something really shifts. Like I talked about the little kid with the blocks. Remember that night? Oh, that's how it works. It's a shift of perception that immediately leads to the change in how we think and the view. And... That's the level of insight. That's what's transformative. And it's not like we just, you don't just have one insight and it's all over, okay? It keeps on going, it keeps on going, it keeps on going. Because as much as there's that, say, the perception of impermanence is suddenly really deep in that moment. Wow, there's moments where you just, not even thinking, it's so clear there's nothing stable and solid. And a half an hour later, you know, that's all gone and it's really solid again. That's not like you did something wrong. But how fast the mind moves, a new mind moment arising every moment, or back to the perception of a permanence, 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 you know, it keeps on being fed. Without what? (laughs) Right, steady awareness. We fall back into the habits. So... So yeah, I've been saying steady, not the lack of steady awareness or awareness kind of checking out, assuming we're interested in awareness in the first place. I mean, without it in kind of just normal life, not even really looking at stuff, but assuming that our perceptions are all accurate, that we just really get all fluffled and confused. But here, where we're starting to really bringing a steady awareness, what are some, and there's a lot, but just some of the aspects I want to highlight that are natural to all of us, natural habits that may um, kind of be a condition for awareness to kind of check out, you know, for us to kind of check out, if you want to say, or go look in the other direction. One, you know, the fact that It's so much a habit to be placing our sense of what's going to make us happy 
or peaceful, whatever it is, on some kind of stability or some particular experience, either getting it or having it. It can be something really beautiful, important, you know, relationship, family, the job we have, just that you can walk out and the earth isn't going to like rumble and move, you know. We can walk out and think it's more or less peaceful here and at the moment we're not in a war zone, whatever it might be. There's, or just the fact that my back isn't hurting and it hasn't hurt, may it never hurt again. You know? <laughs> I'm holding on to that for dear life, but not quite recognizing it. But whatever it is, the habit, and I think we've spoken, I can't remember what I said here or what I said in groups or what someone else said or whether I said it, so if it gets repeated, <laughs> bear with us, or me anyway. Um, the habit of moving to or feeling comfortable or trusting in the pleasant, in what's familiar, in what's pleasant, the place where we feel that we can let down and relax and feel at ease. Does that make sense or you can relate to that? It's rare that we go, wow, this really feels awful. Let me relax and feel it. We've been saying that, right? But it's not our natural tendency. The natural tendency is really to recoil recoil in the face of unpleasant or difficult experience. Just that habit of resistance and aversion to the unpleasant, which we've talked about. Remember Alexis, again, Alexis mentioned in his talk that sutta the dart, where the, I forget how much he said about it, but where, you know, it's a, everybody, whether you're awakened or not, is kind of experiences pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience. That's just happening to all of us. And the difference between one who's at peace and one who's not, is one who's not gets all reactive around the unpleasant. And he said the only, the Buddha said, the only escape, a kind of unawakened, normal person who's not on the path of waking up, the only escape such a one knows from unpleasant experience is to go crave after something pleasant. And so it becomes a habit of mind, he says, that resistance And unhappiness underlies experience of unpleasant. And that can be really subtle unpleasant to really painful stuff. And the habit of craving and going to something pleasant as a way to escape the unpleasant, that becomes a habit. And you can see this, I hope, being acted out in our mind and experience a lot. I want to say all the time, but nothing's all the time except impermanence is all the time. But, <laughs> but all the time, it just is, of course, you know, this is unpleasant, let's go to the pleasant. We're not saying, well, no, you should run from the pleasant to the unpleasant, but he's just saying, knowing no other escape, that's so poignant to me, that's so sad, because that escape isn't an escape. That's what keeps us bound in the cycle of fearing the unpleasant and wanting the pleasant, and because both of those are impermanent, unreliable, and no intrinsic self-existence, that pleasant one can't do it. So then we go to the next pleasant, the next pleasant, the next pleasant, and that's that whole cycle. The real reason why we're saying on retreat here, okay, it hurts a little bit, don't run away right away. There is an escape, but it's not just going to the pleasant. It's really the escape of the shift into wisdom that comes from accurate perception Because the effect of accurate perception is that the mind-heart releases the clinging. 
It really knows this isn't going to do it. Just releases the clinging. It's not an intellectual thing. And that's the escape. The escape is the release of the clinging, the release of the aversion. It's not getting into, you know, into happy, pleasant, pleasant land. It doesn't happen. So anyway, I think one of the, in my experience, one of the uh, common experiences that happens when we don't quite recognize or accept the naturalness of impermanence of change is this sense of recoiling from unpleasant. And even like I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, big movements of impermanence, even though of course we know everything at some point goes away. Every car is going to fall apart. Every meeting ends in parting, as the Tibetans say. We really know we're all going to get sick and die, as is everyone we know and love. Just on the first knowledge level, right? But still, when, the, when something ends, it's, it's sad. It's painful. The sense of loss, the sense of pain, the sense of this shouldn't be happening, you know. And so this natural habit of recoiling, of resisting, the unpleasant, and it could you know, it could manifest as denial, it could manifest as rage, but for sure we're gonna we're gonna feel sadness at loss. But sadness is often experienced as an unpleasant experience, right? So there can even be a recoil from the sadness. So what I found in myself, I'm talking to people, is that this sense of not recognizing or just being at ease with things going away even though obviously they've gone. You can't really deny it when something's gone, but it's a, it's a pulling back from the sense of loss, the sadness, the grief, as if that's a problem. And this is where, again, we come into the escape isn't to get rid of the sadness. It's just it, sadness is okay. That's part of our being human. That might be part of what's going to arise on the emotional level in a time of something we care about falling apart, going away. We don't have to, if we have enough steady awareness, this kind, you know, non, non-preferential awareness, okay, sadness is like this. It's okay. It's just part of being human. All the emotions are part of being human. As I think Alexis was saying, the awareness can keep on being here, can keep on being here. And you'll see the sadness itself changes. When we pull back, it kind of freezes things, and we're back in this sense of uh, contention with things as they are. And just to say, this is part of humanity. There's different stories in the suttas, but the, the one I really love the most that's quite famous about, not, you know, the, this was the same back in the time of the Buddha, the one of Ananda, who, as most of you know, was the Buddha's cousin and loving attendant for the last 25 years of his life. So the Buddha, Ananda was, he's a very um, personable being in the suttas. He's kind of like someone you can relate to. He's not a completely awakened being. So sometimes he makes mistakes. Like he says something that isn't exactly accurate, you know. The Buddha will go, not so, Ananda. And so goes, oh, great, I can be like Ananda, you know. But he's extremely kind. He has incredible memory. He, he, he could remember every single discourse he ever heard the Buddha give. 
And he made a deal with the Buddha when the Buddha asked him to be his attendant. He made a deal. And one of the things he asked for was that if I'm not present for a discourse, that you'll give it to me again later so I can remember it. So if you're ever reading the suttas, the suttas that start, thus have I heard, that's Ananda's voice. Thus have I heard, and then he goes on with the suttas. A sense of, just to give you a sense of a real person. So anyway, this one story, when the Buddha had announced to his sangha that he was going to pass away in three months. And then he's sitting talking to the monks and nuns, and he looks around and he goes, where's Ananda? And um, of course he could know. They all said, well, Ananda's gone back to his hut. And there, there's a, it's an image that Andy Olensky, who was the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and a Pali scholar, he told me later, because they weren't visual images at the time of the Buddha, but much later, it's a, it's a known um, kind of image in, in, in Buddhist imagery. of the Ananda, is just, he's leaning against the, the frame of his door, weeping, weeping and saying, oh, how shall I go on? You know, the teacher who's been so kind to me, the teacher who's so wonderful, who I've been with all these years, is going to leave, and I'm still a learner with much to do, and just weeping, you know, from sadness. It's just so human, right? I love it. So the Buddha, of course, (laughs) okay, get Ananda, come on Ananda, come back. And he says, and you can't tell the tone from reading it, but... He says, Ananda. (laughs) Maybe that wasn't his tone. I don't know, right? (laughs) He goes, haven't I told you? (laughs) Everything that comes together, when the conditions change, they must go apart, you know? How can it be otherwise? It cannot be otherwise. But then he goes on to actually cultivate wholesome qualities in Ananda's mind frame at that mind state at that moment. He, he just says, you know, you've been so many years so faithful, so generous, so kind. You've really, you know, you have all these really wonderful, generous qualities. Really recognize them and don't worry, you're on the path and you'll wake up. So he's not like, you stupid jerk Ananda. He's like, ah, oh, you know, it's so sad, but really, look at all the wholesome qualities. Look at all the wisdom Incline the mind to that, and awakening will surely occur. But I just love that because it's, okay, this is our path. This is what it's like to be human. So we don't need to recoil from sadness or take it, or grief or whatever, or take it as a sign that change shouldn't be happening or you did something wrong. It's just part of the whole bigger picture. But again, this tendency to pull back is a place that the steady awareness drops out, doesn't it? Because we don't want to feel it. And it's a habit, that deep habit. So we're not even on purpose saying, I don't want to feel it. We're just gone looking for pleasure. That's, you know, on the big picture. So just one way of recognizing that. So in that way, you know, clinging to anything it's such a poignant strategy for happiness because it's so, it's so, doesn't work. It so actually is what keeps us spinning in the dissatisfaction, in the sense of dis-ease, you know? Um, why do we cling? One is what I said the Buddha said to escape from unpleasant. 
I also think one of the things that maybe many of us, not everyone, experience is unpleasant, or what we're wanting is that sense of ease, which we can equate with a sense of stability or familiarity or control, right? I don't know, many of you notice in the meditation the sense of trying to control something just because God forbid what might happen if I don't have it all (laughs) tightly together. Something great might happen, but I don't know. I'd rather know and just have it in this nice little packet so nothing bad could surprise me. But anyway, this sense of of stability and a kind of a reaction, one of the reactions, to the unreliability, the fact of dukkha unreliability, the fact of constant change, is to somehow the mind's looking for something steady to hold on to. You know? So whether it's a sense experience, whether it's a, a relationship, an idea, a view about things, a particular comfort with the level of people you're with, whether it's our ideas or views about ourselves, a view about our personality. And it may not even be a nice view, but it's familiar. And I know that's what I'm like. Don't try to tell me otherwise. It's familiar. Okay. And that's such a... Um, it just increases. The dis-ease, the disjunct, the being in contention with things as they are. The peace that comes from wise view is that we're no longer fighting with reality. It's just doing its thing. It's like this, and it, it's not a problem. You know the teacher Byron Katie? And she says, when you fight with reality, you lose. I love that. When I feel like I'm struggling, and, oh, I fight with reality. <laughs> I'm losing. So there's this, um, a line from one of the suttas. The search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. Not needing a place to rest. Can you imagine that? Or uh, one Tibetan saying, uh, it was like a meditation instruction, resting at ease in whatever arises. Just, it's this now. That's all. That's all. No sense of past, future, changing, not change. Just resting at ease in whatever arises. Again, one abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. Abiding, having that sense of landing and trying to stay and hold and settle. Now, the th- I don't know how this is landing for you all, but I know my intellectual thinking mind doesn't like that very much. It's like, what do you mean? Nothing, no abiding. One rests in peace who doesn't rest anywhere. I want to rest. I like to be comfortable. And comfortable means I rest. I don't have to every single moment be changing and not abiding and this and this and this. is exhausting. But what's exhausting is the mind going on about that with aversion. That's what's exhausting. (laughs) It's like you don't even have to think about it at all. It's just how it already is. So that's one way I just wanted to point out that the, the steady awareness falls away and the perception of impermanence isn't perceived. This The deep habit of recoiling, pulling back, denying, resisting, going to the pleasant in the face of discomfort, unfamiliarity, dis-ease. Another way, again, and 
is, is we may not recognize, or often we don't, the, how to say it, the momentariness of change. So, for example, once I was hearing a, a talk from the Dalai Lama, he was talking about this and said, we'll say, well, everything changes, like we think, like my body. It came into existence, and it's here for a while, and then it goes away, right? So it's changing, but it's kind of steady state, or whatever, the zabutan, steady state, whatever. And so he said, we're seeing change, but he said, no, that's not really it, because that still is assuming a kind of permanence. What's not being recognized is the momentariness, the incredible rapidity of change. It said somewhere in the suttas, the, the Buddha talked about how many mind moments arise, a moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Something like whatever the measurement they use then, it translates to something enormous, like 17 trillion, something you know, unthinkable in the blink of an eye. We're talking fast. And so when, you know, perceptions are happening this quick, it's so fast that, you know, it can look permanent. You know, the example that's often given is if you have a, uh, a torch, like a, a fiery torch, and you spin it really fast in the dark, and if you spin it fast enough, it looks like a solid circle of flame. Have you ever seen that? No, anyway, so that's the rapidity, so then it looks solid. So that, in a way, is going on with us. And of course, you can't sit down and say, no, I'm going to notice 17 trillion you know, mind <laughs> moments in the blink of an eye. That's just an idea. But it's to point in a direction. Again, what does it bring us back to? The steadiness of awareness here, 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 at various aspects of this change. They reveal themselves. How can it not? That's what's happening. Sometimes I play, when I'm playing with awareness of seeing, and again, we, we talked about seeing. Seeing's like, it's not that you don't have the concepts. It's more seeing is like the awareness of the process that seeing has happened. And looking is more like being kind of out in the content of what's being seen. Sort of like the difference between being lost in thought and being aware of thought, right? When you could be aware of a thought, you still might know the content, but you're not in there mucking around with it. So same with looking and seeing. But so as we're walking around, first, how often seeing is occurring, which we don't notice a lot, right? But if you start just playing with it, not worrying about the content, but just play every single instant, the seeing is different. It's never exactly the same. Even if I just sit still like this, this shows up, that shows up, that, you know, different things are coming to the forefront. Just, it's always different. And that's just one of the sense doors. Never mind how fast the mind door is moving. So just starting to notice the momentariness of change. Don't make a big deal about it. Just let that go in. But as the awareness is getting more and more naturally steady, this starts to reveal itself. And can start to, you know, we, a lot of the time we won't. You'll, you'll see then how much the perception is really of permanence. And that's not a problem, but just noticing that. How many moments is the, I don't count it, okay. Don't like, <laughs> think you have to count, but just there's so many moments the perception is actually of permanence. 
that it's interesting. It doesn't take an equal number of moments of perception of impermanence for insight to really come. Because how much of our life has the perception been of permanence? And it keeps on being. So for example, in your time here today, in your practice today, whatever you were doing, sitting, walking, having an emotion, was there ever, did it ever happen at all today that something occurred and there's a thought, oh no, now I'm going to be with this, you know, the whole sitting. Oh no, here comes this again. I'm going to have to deal with this mental thing again all day. I was with it all day yesterday and here it is again today. Did that ever happen to anybody? (laughs) And then it's often that we don't, not always, but it's a, a kind of selective attention. Again, not the steadiness, why we talk about non-preferential awareness. We don't even realize, but the selective attention kind of often skips over the neutral. So even this thing, oh no, it's going to be here all day and it's really a pain and we don't like it, but it's got some juice to it. So we notice, awareness notices when that comes up. It somehow doesn't notice all those moments that there was boredom, that you were hearing the tree frogs, that you were wondering what was for lunch, that you were just a little bit sleepy, that you were thinking about last week, and, oh, God, here's this thing. It's been here all day. It's going to be here all day. I can't bear it. Right? (laughs) Just notice that. Nothing, nothing is here all day. There may be... Maybe there's only a fraction of a second that that pain wasn't there all day. But there was a moment. He said, no, it was there. I just didn't notice it, but it was there. That's what we do. Just check it out. Don't believe me. Check it out. Really, sometimes we start to see there is no stasis anywhere. That's what His Holiness the Dalai Lama was pointing to. Sometimes I I talk as an example of a time-lapse film of, of a flower growing. And we just found out yesterday that that, that um, camera that's set up in the front, I don't know if you've noticed that. What's that doing? They're actually, apparently, doing time-lapse filming of the tulips growing. Don't ask me what they're going to do with it. I really isn't that, that going to go up on the website. And This is what you can see if you come to a retreat. <laughs> Five weeks on the, on the website of watching the tulip grow. That'll, that'll pack the house. But, but anyway, it's fortuitous, so I can use it in this talk. <laughs> but So you can imagine, right, a time lapse, you see it on nature shows, and the, the plant coming up through the dirt, and moving, so it's, it's speeded up. But if you see that, it's continually changing, right? It's just speeded up. There's no moment that you can stop it and say, that's the bulb, and it's stopped. The next moment, it's changing a little bit, changing a little bit. You can't say, now this is the stem, now that's the flower, and it's stopped. It never completely stops, becomes a thing isolated in itself. The conditions are coming together and changing and making it every instant. That's nature. Guess what, right view, right? Guess what we are? Nature. That's what's going on. Conditions coming together in every moment. They're slightly different in the body, in the mind, in all the different sense doors that are arising. Always different. So the steady awareness isn't like we don't have to think about this stuff. But the more we really pay attention, it starts to be highlighted. A friend many years ago was saying on a, on a retreat, 
And, you know, she'd been sitting for like 20 years, years and years. You know, I, I really, I've gotten it, I've known for years, really known in my gut, you know, cellularly, like uh, insight, that everything around is in constantly changing. But suddenly now I'm getting it, oh, me too. I'm part of that. Before it's like, I'm here, solid, watching everything constantly change. Doesn't it feel like that? But she says, oh no, it's not. It's like completely part of it. There's no separation. This is from the Buddha. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of not-self is stabilized. And when the perception of not-self is stabilized, that perception eradicates the conceit I am, the view I am, the same thing he said before, which is nibbana in this very life. Nibbana means liberation of heart-mind through non-clinging. So you see, they work together so that perception of impermanence really stabilizes the perception of not-self. Because that sense of the constant change, with steady awareness, you don't have to think about it, that's just what presents itself. You know, sometimes in, in um, say, let's pick the sitting meditation, and I think uh, both Alexis and Mark talked about how sometimes it's wild, you know, people say sometimes it's nice and calm and we can stay with the breath, which is fine. But one of the things that somehow can be the trap, if it's a trap, doesn't have to be a trap, it can be very useful. But if we feel like we're kind of need to go back there, because why? Because it's calm. Because it gives the illusion of stability. And when we open up, we go, no, it's just stuff's going on all over the place. This, 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 and that. That's not good meditation. I'm not stabilized. I'm not concentrated. I've got to go back to the breath. Right? It happens a lot. What are we opening up to? Something's wrong. Everything's changing, and it's not in my control. Something's wrong. How can I fix it? Okay, that's not meditation. If you're trying to fix that, well, keep trying until you notice how much suffering is increasing and how it, oh, just let go into it. You can't let go, but just notice it's like this and not believe that that's wrong. It's more steady awareness is just noticing it's like this now. So when there's a view, a wrong view, say, unrecognized view, it's an unrecognized view when you think, this is wrong, it shouldn't be so changing, there's something out of control, there's something, I'm doing something wrong, that's a result of the wrong view that stuff isn't changing, that we should be able to be stable, that everything should be kind of copacetic somehow. But the steady awareness that isn't adhering to any view, not even right, but just noticing what is, you go, oh, that's wild. It's like this now. And awareness is steady, and it's like this now. Awareness isn't stained or damaged by difficult, unpleasant experience. Awareness isn't better or purer or clearer if the experience is pleasant or one we like or really subtle. Awareness is just receiving whatever arises. And the, the meaning that this is good and this is bad is all put on 
by our thinking. So Nisargadatta Maharaj said once that we miss the real by lack of attention and we create the unreal by excess of imagination. (laughs) I love that. So that's what we're doing. So this sense of um, the perception of impermanence stabilizing, basically the perception, the recognition of not-self, we can see that, and that doesn't have to be super subtle, we can just begin to notice that as we go through the days here in the retreat. That's what's nice about a retreat. We just have the space to notice what's going on anyway, but with a little more subtlety because we're not quite so distracted. But just as I was mentioning before, in terms of physical sensations, in terms of mental states, a friend of mine said he noticed on retreat, he was really frustrated, but then he recognized it's impossible to be frustrated all day, even if you try. It's just impossible to be frustrated all day. (laughs) So we notice the presence and the absence of mind states. Noticing also the views, the personality view we have of ourself. You know, and that can be helpful to first recognize I'm a depressive person. I'm someone who can't meditate. I'm whatever it is. You know, I'm angry a lot. Like we have a, a, a good friend who is a self-confessed aversive type. Not only self-confessed, I mean, all her friends are like on her case. You're aversive, you're aversive, you're all in. She got kind of fed up, and she was sitting one day. And she said, I'm just going to really pay attention, just be really steady in awareness of all the mental activity, all the mental states that went on through the day, just out of interest. And so she saw, of course, one can't help but see that they're constantly changing. She said, yeah, there's a lot of aversive mental states. And there was a lot of generosity arising. And there was a lot of metta arising. And there was a lot of just concentration or just equanimity or just, just being normal, doing whatever. So she comes out, I'm an aversive person, is again picking and choosing and just ignoring everything else that's occurring. So maybe something comes up frequently, but we don't have to land on it. Just to stay with the steady awareness, you'll see there's... Everything's changing. We can't land anywhere, good, bad, or in between. It's always in flux. So we just seem, simply need to notice what's actually going on. In a way, it's taking refuge in the awareness rather than taking refuge in pleasant, unpleasant, our ideas about ourselves, good ideas, bad ideas. Just that willingness, okay, it's like this now. And let the steadiness of awareness, the willingness to just relax back into awareness, be the refuge and let life reveal itself. This actually has the effect of really opening and freeing the heart-mind. It really does release the clinging the grasping, because the grasping to trying to hold something, recognize nothing to be held, it's all moving and there's nothing solid there anyway. The lack of struggle and the real presence opens us to the beauty and mystery and real presence in life rather than this constant push-pull. 
But it's true that there can be times along the way when maybe we first open in a deep way, one time or another time, to the unreliability of experience or to the fact that there really isn't some steady state me that we thought there was. Just a moment when it's not there. Recognizing that in a deep level is peace. But this is from Ajahn Sumedho, and I think this can be quite uh, helpful. As one begins to realize or recognize non-grasping as the way, non-grasping at anything, including self and ideas, then sometimes, not doesn't have to be, but sometimes emotionally one can feel quite frightened by this. You know, that everything's changing and there's no me and there's nowhere to rest. It can seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, starts falling apart. And it can be frightening. It doesn't have to be, I'm not sure, but it can be. But if we have the faith to continue bearing with these emotional reactions. What Alexis talked about last night, the faith, just the willingness to be here with kind awareness, with these emotional reactions, and allow things that arise to cease, to appear and disappear according to their nature, then we find stability not in achievement or attaining, but in being awake, in being aware. That stability of just this moment of being aware. That's it. That's it. Not thinking about it. So this refuge in awareness, it releases the struggle, even just for that one moment. It releases the struggle. It really opens us into a fullness of presence. But it's not a disconnected fullness of presence at all. Sometimes people say, why would I want to perceive this constant change? Why would I want to open to this? You know, it sounds dreadful, the instability, and it sounds like maybe knowing everything's changing, you wouldn't care. But, you know, it's just the opposite. Because it's a caring that doesn't come from a need to reify or justify or make myself okay. It's a caring that's like just, is how it is. The beautiful, the difficult, the poignant. The, the sense of presence and being alive is more so. We don't stop caring. Uh, so two examples. One, just from the Dalai Lama, I read about him once. You know, he meets like so many people, right, every day. And all the Tibetan refugees in here, so many really heartbreaking, unbearable stories of people suffering. And then he meets people happy and all. And people, many people have said, and I've read this, that when he's meeting people, when he's meeting someone, and he's shaking your hand and talking to you, they always say they feel like he's just so totally with you, like, he's, like this is the high point of his day, meeting you, whoever it is. He's 100% there. And that they can watch him. He's with someone telling a horrible refugee story, and he's crying with them. He's totally feeling with them, you know. And then that's gone. The next person comes. He turns to that person. It's a whole different world. He's not weeping anymore. He's totally there with that person. Maybe they're laughing. Maybe it's just talking about some business. And some say, well, how do you do that? How, do you, how can you just drop it? He goes, well, it's totally present. That's what's happening, the sadness. But there's no holding on. It doesn't reverberate. It's this. 
then it's gone. And the next thing occurs. That can really be like that. It doesn't mean we don't care. We're able to be fully there because we're not like have this fear of, oh my God, it's going to overwhelm me. Just, just to explore that possibility. And to notice in terms of impermanence, notice when your mental states, when a difficult one is gone, sometimes we don't quite have the steadiness to notice it's gone. We jump into the next thing. Notice the absence of difficult mental states. Notice the presence of wholesome and notice the absence of wholesome. Because that really helps us. Like, so, you, oh, I've been so frustrated all day and then you're not. Notice the absence. Not assuming, well, it's under there. I'm just not clear enough to see it. That's just some idea. You're looking around. It's really gone. It's gone. Sure, it'll come back. The conditions will change. But notice that. And then the other thing, the other way of just saying we, the, the sensitivity, the tenderness to be with life as it is, I think, is stronger, is deeper. It can really open to the mystery and the wonder. I just wanted to read just two poems to end. One, this very short um, haiku by Isa, which to me is just knowing the ephemeral nature of the world and still we're human. You probably heard me. It's written a year, the year anniversary of the death of his young child. And it's just very simple. I said, This dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet. And that's how it is for us. And this is Hafiz, Hafiz, deepening the wonder. Death is a favor to us but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.